The scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and it can be found on page 743 in the Black Bibles. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, make King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tricia and Jim. Let's pray together as we look into God's word this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it challenges us and instructs us. We thank you for its truth and its authority in our lives, and we pray that we would uh, receive it as such this morning, and oh Holy Spirit, that you would be at work even now during this time. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If uh, I were to come up to you on the street, and I were to just uh, tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, name the first thing that you think of, and then I say, the book of Daniel, what would you say? Anyone? Lions, right? The, the, that, the, on the book of Daniel, 99% of the, of the people, you know, would know that there's some story in the Bible somewhere, and we think that it's in this book, about a guy getting thrown into a lion's den. And it's here in chapter 6 of Daniel. I actually think that if you were to rank Bible stories in their top 10 uh, from people who were familiar with the Bible, for people who were not familiar with the Bible, uh, I, would, I, would hes- I, would, I would venture a guess that Daniel in the lion's den would come in second of well-known Bible stories only behind David and Goliath. That's my non-scientific poll. But all that is to say is that this is a very, very familiar story. And sometimes with familiarity, I know at least with me, with familiarity comes complacency. 
We think we know what the story of Daniel in the lion's den is all about. You know, it's, there's a song about it. Dare to be a Daniel. Who knows that song? I know that. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. So the, the story of Daniel in the lion's den is about bravery in light of difficult circumstances. Um, but it's really much more than that. And what I want us to see, above all things, is how Daniel chapter 6, this story about Daniel in the lion's den, reinforces the theme of the entire book of Daniel. And the theme of the entire book of Daniel is that God alone is the king over all creation. It's not really about Daniel's bravery, although we're going to look at that. It's, it's a reiteration of the fact that God alone is the king over all creation. All nations and all rulers are under him. He is in control of all human history. So Daniel chapter 6 illustrates that point with yet another human ruler named Darius who represents yet another earthly kingdom, which is Medea-Persia, uh, who has conquered the Babylonian kingdom and is now governing a vast territory. But let's go into more detail. What can we learn from the story in Daniel 6 that underlies this grand story of Daniel, of the sovereignty and kingship of God over all things? There are three things. And so we're going to take three sermons to go through Daniel chapter 6. We're going to slow it down just a second. The first is, is that God calls you to engage the world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Second, when you engage the world, you will suffer hurt. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And third, when you engage the world and suffer hurt, the light of the gospel, the kingship of God, actually shines brightest and it actually shines forth and so in three weeks that's what we're going to talk about so this morning this is our proposition because God is the king over all creation he calls you to engage his world without fear because God is the king over all creation he calls you if you're a follower of Jesus if you are a Christian he calls you to engage his world without fear quick overview of Daniel chapter 6 is that Daniel is faithful in both of his callings. He is faithful in his calling as a worshiper of God. And he is faithful in his calling to serve as one of the presidents, one of the rulers uh, in Babylon under Darius, who is leading at least that section of the Babylonian Empire at that point. He is so faithful that they can find no fault in him, the people who are jealous of him and his relationship with Darius. And so they say we can only find fault with him at the point of his worship, not at the point of his work. And so we'll see next week and the following week that the other presidents and the other satraps come up with a plan which is to trap Daniel in worship, to trap Daniel in prayer by in convincing Darius to come up with this decree that no person should pray to anybody except for him for 30 days. But Daniel doesn't do that because Daniel prays, as was his practice, three times a day uh, to God. And so they catch him in this. Darius had 
issued an irrevocable decree. He couldn't change his mind. He was not happy about it. But the punishment for Daniel not following his instructions was to be thrown into a lion's den. And then that den covered over with a stone with the seal of Darius over it. But strangely, even though the lions were hungry, which we see a little bit later, they did not eat Daniel because the Lord sent one of his angels to be present with him to shut the mouths of the lions. And so when Darius came the next morning and found that Daniel was not only alive, but that he had not been touched by the lions, he realized that he had been duped. He realized that there was something to this God of Israel. He removed Daniel from the lion's den. He threw all the plotters and their families into the lion's den. The lions were in fact hungry because before they even reached the ground, uh, they were attacked by those lions. And then the chapter ends with Darius making a proclamation of the kingship of the God of Israel, which is the second time a pagan ruler has actually done that. But the whole story bolsters the point that God is in control of all things, that he'll vindicate his people, and that he will judge evil and wickedness in his own time. Now the question that I want us to ask then is this, how does that influence the way that you and I live as followers of Jesus? If that is true, how does that influence our lives? And the answer is that we engage the world without fear. Daniel 6 is a real life illustration of something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is very famous. In Matthew 5, verses 11 through 16, Jesus says this. And when I read these words, think about the story that I just told. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, Daniel and others. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste or its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Three things that Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad when you suffer persecution because of your faithfulness to him. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And if we use Jesus' words as a grid to understand Daniel 6, we will see that Daniel is the salt of the earth, that Daniel suffers unjust persecution because of what he does, and that God uses Daniel to shine the light of the gospel into the world. So if that is true... What can we learn from Daniel chapter 6 about being the salt of the earth? How do we live as the salt of the earth? Well, there are three things that salt does, and we can illustrate that through the first ten verses of Daniel chapter 6. The first is that salt goes out. Salt has to disperse to be effective. The second, salt goes in. It 
goes deeply into the place that it is laid. And the third is that salt preserves. It prevents what would normally decay from decaying. So first, salt goes out. Salt that stays in a pillar or in a pile in the first century, you know, when this was uh, written, or remains on the sidelines is going to waste. It's not good for anything, Jesus says, except to be trampled underfoot. So when Jesus spoke these words in the first century, salt played an important role with respect to food. Not as seasoning, it was too expensive for that and it had a higher purpose. Its purpose, as we're going to see later on, was as a preservative for foods that if salt was not applied to it without refrigeration, which they didn't have you know, in the first century and in the desert, would spoil and would go to waste. So in order for salt to be in the world, it has to go out. It has to disperse to serve its purpose. So what Jesus is saying is for us to be salt, for you to be salt in the world, the first thing that you have to do is go out. Christians have to disperse, disperse into the world. It is worth pausing here to ask the question why Daniel was in the position that he was in in chapter 6 in the first place. How did he get there? How did he get to this position of being one of three presidents leading 40 satraps in the administration of the pagan ruler Darius the Mede? It's very weird. Well, the truth is he wasn't there by choice. Well, he was there by God's choice. He wasn't there by his choice. He was there because of the sovereignty of God. Having gone into exile in Babylon with others from the city of Jerusalem after the first wave of Nebuchadnezzar's attack on the area of Judah. But why did that have to happen? Why did that exile happen in the first place? Well, Jeremiah, the prophet, helps us there. In Jeremiah chapter 25, God warns the people of Judah, which is the larger region where Jerusalem was the main city. God specifically warned the people of Judah that because of their rebellion against God, their failure to keep the covenant he established with them, that the king of Babylon would defeat them and he would take them into exile for 70 years. And this is exactly what happened. But what was this covenant that Judah failed to keep. Well, it was the covenant that God first made with Abraham that said, I will be your God, you will be my people. Expanded through Moses, you will have no other gods before me, you will worship no other gods before me, and you will be a light to all of the nations that surround you, letting them know that there is a living and true God. The problem was is that the nation of Israel failed to keep this covenant. They did worship other gods. And instead of being a light to the other nations, calling them to worship God alone, they assimilated themselves into the worship of the nations that surrounded them and began to take on the traits of the nations that surrounded them, including false worship and disregard for the law of God. So they failed to obey his commandments and they failed to obey his mission to be a light to the nations that surround them. So God disciplines them and disperses them. And so not by his own choice, Daniel and others find themselves in a pagan land making a decision about whether they are going to represent the God of Israel 
or they're going to assimilate themselves to the gods of Babylon. In many ways, this makes me think about the role of the church in a city like Houston. There are a couple of ways, I think, that Christians are tempted to approach living uh, in the world. And, and they're both challenged by this necessity of salt to disperse into the world in order to accomplish its mission and accomplish its goal. One is, is that there is a temptation for Christians to bifurcate their lives, to split their lives into two parts. Uh, and it makes it easier to live, to be honest with you. This just makes life easier, but it's wrong. Uh, there's a sacred part to your life. There's the life of the church. So you come to church and there's the, the religious part of your life, but it stops at the doors of the church when you leave or the doors of your small group or the doors of your Bible study. Because in order for you to actually make sense of the world, you then have to go into the second part of your life, and that is the secular, secular part of your life. That's the part of your life that, that God doesn't really have much to do with, that he doesn't really touch. That's your relationships, your friendships, your social life, your vocational life, your work in the world, and your leisure. But you, you know, if you see the world this way, the truth is that you will never be faithful to God's call to be salt in the world. You'll never disperse. The salty part of your life will just stay in, in, the, in the religious realm, the, the, the realm of church or the realm of your Bible study. You'll never go out and disperse into the world, so the salt will lose its saltiness. But another way that Christians can make sense of, of the world is simply to fear it. It's to be afraid of the world. And, and to avoid every part of it at every cost because you're scared of what entering into the world will do to you. So the church becomes not only a place of refuge, which it should be. The church should be a place of refuge. But the church becomes a place of safety that you never want to leave, figuratively speaking. And you begin to fear if you are part of a church that begins to focus too much of its attention outwardly, hoping to call others into the worship of God because you are afraid that if that happens, you wonder what will happen to the safe place that you have created in the life of the church. But to be salt in the world means that the one thing that we absolutely cannot do, either individually or corporately as a church, is to create a world and a life for ourselves that is completely separate from the mission that God has set us in, which is the city of Houston. Salt, to do its work, must disperse. It must go out. But second, salt, to do its work, must go in. When Jesus said that his followers are the salt of the earth, they would have immediately understood what he meant. They would have immediately understood how salt had to be used to be effective. For salt to work as a preservative, it couldn't just be sprinkled over whatever food that needed to preserve. It had to be worked into it, worked deeply into it. It had to get all the way through it as much as it possibly could. If you took a piece of meat and you just sprinkled salt on the top of it, the top layer of it may be preserved, but the meat would still rot from the inside all the way out. So if you wanted to preserve some meat with some salt, you would cover it with salt and you would work it in there as much as you possibly could 
to keep the bacteria from growing, to keep it from spoiling. And this really is what we see in Daniel's life in chapter 6. What does it mean to go in as one who represents God? Well, there are two things that it does not mean, and we'll see what it means that way. First, it means to move in and not to separate. To move into the world and not to separate from the world. The same prophet, Jeremiah, who pronounced God's judgment on the people of Judah in chapter 25, wrote a letter to them while they were in exile in Jeremiah chapter 29. While the people of Jerusalem were still in exile, it seems that they were still trying to remain completely separate from the place where they were exiled. So Jeremiah writes them a letter and says, I still want you to be a light in this place. So here are my instructions for you. Go in. Go into the place that you are in exile. Build houses. Plant gardens. Take wives. Have children. And seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. This is exactly what God says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 6 and 7. You see, Jeremiah was writing these words to people already in exile. It seems that their temptation was to still huddle up and to still not go out into this place where they were, where God was encouraging them actually to go in, to go in. And Daniel was all in. He was deeply in. Daniel was so in that he was serving multiple pagan rulers so well and with such excellence for the good of the kingdom of Babylon, who would naturally and normally be his enemy that he could have actually undermined if he wanted to, but he was serving them so well that the people who didn't like him couldn't find any charge against him at all except that he worshipped God. He was good at his job. He went in. But going in does not mean that you compromise. You see, you neither separate nor assimilate. You neither separate nor assimilate. Daniel never lost his identity as a follower of the living and true God. The truth of the matter is, is that it was part of the training of Nebuchadnezzar way back in chapter 1. If you remember, the goal of Nebuchadnezzar when he had brought these people into his palace was to completely assimilate them into the worship of Babylon. To make them forget the God of Israel. And just to become like him. But Daniel and his friends never did that. They never lost their identity as worshipers of God. And so... Daniel knew that worshiping God and praying to him had been outlawed. He knew the consequences of disobeying the law. He knew that the law could not be changed. It was an irrevocable law. So what did he do? He went to his room, to the window that was facing Jerusalem, to remember the faithfulness of God. He got down on his knees and he prayed. And the thing about this is this. He did not do this as an act of defiance. He didn't do this to throw it in anybody's face. The Bible tells us he got down on his knees and he prayed as was his custom. 
as was his practice. He just went along with normal life as he had always done it, and his normal life included prayer three times a day to God, no matter what the consequences were. Do you see what this means? He neither separated himself from the place he was in exile, nor assimilated himself to it. These are the twin challenges to you if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus. Because we're tempted to see, to believe that this is simply not possible. Modern American Christians believe that if they don't separate, they will assimilate. And so we are, tend to be governed by fear. If I go too deeply into places that are scary, then I will lose my identity as a follower of Jesus. It's inevitable. I'll become polluted by the world or my children will or we all will. But you may also be tempted to find it hard to maintain your identity as a follower of Jesus in the midst of constant and unremitting pressure to do so. And so we're tempted either not to go in at all or to go in and to lose our identity as followers of Jesus, to simply go in and assimilate. I think college students tend to do this all the time. I'm a parent of college students now. It's scary for them to go into universities, you know? And so they say either, well, I'm going to separate myself from it completely because it's too scary, or for four years I'm just going to go in and I'm going to be like everybody else. And when I graduate, you know, then it'll be different. It's, it, it's, it's a scary place to go it's a scary thing to do but part of this I think has to do with one of the grand temptations that we all face particularly people who live in this city in this part of this city and who kind of live under this kind of cultural rubric that we live in this part of Houston and that is that our great temptation I think in fact potentially our greatest idolatry the thing we might even worship more than God is to be safe. What we long for, if we, if we were all injected with truth serum, if what we long for, for ourselves and for our children, is we want them to be safe. And I'm not just talking about physical safety. Of course you want physical safety. I'm talking about safe from the world. Safe from, from ever having to do anything that's really hard. An easy, comfortable life. That's what we want. We really want an easy and a comfortable life. But is that what we are called to as followers of Jesus? Daniel was forced into a dangerous situation. And then he moved even more purposefully into it. He moved into it with all that he had. But then he maintained his identity as a follower of Jesus in the midst of it, despite what the consequences were. My question for me and my question for you is, is that your pattern? Is that your pattern? Is that the pattern of our church, the modern American church? Now, I think, is usually the time where somebody in this sermon would say something like this. And so what this means is that you, in order to be faithful to God, have to sell your house... And you have to move into the worst neighborhood in Houston. That's what this means. I've heard people say this before. That's why I said that. I don't actually think that that is what this means. Maybe God's calling you to do that. It is quite possible. But in order to move in and maintain your identity as a follower of Jesus, you can do that 
in any place in all of Houston, and generally speaking, it's all equally as scary. Because all of the places that we would tend to live or go to school or raise our children are, are, are places where the ethos of the world is coming into conflict with the ethos of the gospel. So protecting, uh, so, so moving in, you can do that wherever you are. You know, here's something I've noticed about Houston. I'm kind of running out of time here, but I'm going to say this anyway. I've lived in Houston now for 19 years. And one of the things that I have noticed about Houston in those 19 years is that the places that people, you know, in like the, in the major Houston metro area would think that people live to have the easiest lives, generally speaking, don't. Um, every time I, so River Oaks, some of y'all might live in River Oaks. I, I, I'm a fan. It's okay. I'm just going to. But it's just but listen to me here for just a second. People in Houston would say, okay, that is the most exclusive neighborhood in all of Houston. And people that live in other places in Houston might drive through River Oaks and they might look at all the houses and they might look at everything that's going on there and they might say to themselves, man, it would be nice to live here. I bet these people have no problems. I mean, what could, what, how easy is their life? You know, how simple is their life to, to, to live in this place? But I'm going to tell you something. I get sad when I drive through River Oaks. Do you know why? Because I've been here 19 years and I've known enough to know that in driving through that neighborhood, I have seen and walked through and experienced and other people have hurt after hurt after pain after pain. It's a painful place to be. So if you live there, does that mean you should leave it because it's a painful and hard place to be? No, it means that God has put you there, but he's put you there not to wall yourself off or any other neighborhood. West U, Memorial, Wilchester, the Heights, Spring Branch, Montreal, wherever it is that you live. God has put you there not to retreat, not to wall yourself off, not to make a compound for yourself, but to look up. And to look around and to see the pain and to see the hurt and to see the despair, to see the unbelief that is all around you. And then to walk into it. It can happen in any neighborhood, in any suburb of this city. The last thing that I'd want us to see here in Daniel very quickly is that salt preserves what is decaying. The reason that Jesus uses the metaphor of salt during the Sermon on the Mount is because of his central purpose, which is to rub into things that would normally decay and go bad because of bacteria and to stop, or not to stop, but to slow down the growth of that bacteria so that it wouldn't spoil so quickly. It was still going to spoil, but not as quickly. So this is what Daniel does in Babylon. He, in, in many ways, because, of the, I mean, God does this, but he uses Daniel to do this. But think about this. There have been so many periods in the history of Babylon that we have read about and talked about from verses chapter 1 through chapter 6 where that place could have absolutely destroyed itself because of its false worship. 
and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have shined the light of the gospel in those places. And we don't know, like, we don't know what's actually in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know what's actually in the heart of Darius. But in doing those things, we have two times now had kings that did not worship God verbalize that the God of Israel is the king and is worthy of worship and worthy of praise. That, that's not normal. And that only happens because of the presence of followers of God who don't retreat but don't compromise. And they preserve what is decaying all around them. Daniel was a missionary in a foreign culture by providential circumstances. Now, here's the question I want to leave us with. Um, might go just a tiny bit over, but it's an important question. Daniel, did, was, was, was vocationally speaking, was Daniel in a sacred vocation or a secular vocation? Was he, uh, in other words, I'll, I'll put this in modern American evangelical jargon. Was Daniel a full-time Christian servant? Do you know what I mean? Was Daniel a full-time Christian servant? What was Daniel's job? Daniel's job was to be the president of Babylon, one of three. And he had 40 satraps under him. And his job was to make sure that this pagan empire thrived. Now the Medea Persian Empire, but of the territory of Babylon. That was his job. Now he was a prophet because he had to be. He was a prophet by the providence of God. But, but, but Daniel, Daniel was not a pastor. He was a president, and God used him in all of these ways to shine forth the light of the gospel so that pagan emperors actually confess with their mouths that at least the God of Israel was a king. That's pretty amazing. We still tend to believe that there are people that if they're really spiritual or they're really gifted or they're really talented in things of religion they will become pastors or missionaries and we tend to set those people apart but everybody else is just kind of normal you know every kind of normal person you know just kind of has a normal job Daniel was extraordinarily gifted for ministry but he didn't do it until he had to he was the president over Babylon and really what I want what I want you to understand is that we have to get away from dichotomizing the sacred and the secular among the people of this church. I don't think this is like a massive problem in this church, but I think it is a massive problem in the church in America as a whole. We have to get away from the dichotomization of thinking there are spiritual people and spiritual things and there are regular people and regular things. And unless you're a pastor or a missionary or you're working on a campus ministry or something, you're a regular person who just does regular things. No, you're a regular person who does spiritual things because all of life is under the lordship of God. All of the universe belongs to him. 
So as C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people doing ordinary things. Whatever it is that you are doing in the world, whatever it is that you are doing in the world, whether it is taking a test, or changing a diaper, or going to an office, or selling real estate, or writing legal contracts, or trying to find oil out of a rock somewhere in West Texas. Whatever it is that you are doing, God has put you there to represent Him. To be in that place for that purpose, and you have no idea how He is using you. No idea what is happening by the way that you work and the place that you work. That is something that we can learn from Daniel. Don't be afraid to move in, but don't move in naively. You go as a representative of Jesus. If you represent Jesus, you will be hurt. But your presence, when you neither separate nor assimilate, reduces rot and decay in this world, wherever it is that you are, and brings with it the light of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just how deep and how rich and how powerful it is. We pray that like salt, you would work it deeply into our hearts and then our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.